<laughs> okay, so we're in the book of Amos. So you might want to find that if you haven't if you have if you haven't lost it. It's there. It's there near the back of the Old Testament. It's Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you find Hosea, you can you can find your way to Amos in the Minor Prophets. There we go. I found it. No, I just found it. <laughs> Took me a little while though. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, we ask for you to humble our hearts and give us uh, wisdom and insight for your dealing with your people Israel who were so disobedient and so difficult. And we pray that uh, you would awaken us to the need to be an obedient people, to please you with our lives, to be humble before you, to tremble at your word and to give you the fear that you are due. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, well we're only four chapters into this rather amazing book of uh, prophecy and we've seen lots of judgment promised for this rebellious and, and, and wicked people and we're going to see a lot more as, as it unfolds. They've, they've been idolaters for like 200 years. So we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel after this big split. They invented they invented false gods to represent the true God and then they quickly descended into worshiping other false gods. So the people of the kingdom of Israel totally abandoned their very purpose for existence and which is to represent the true God to the world. I mean that was their job and they were to do that by living holy lives and honoring him and all that they did. So judgment is coming. The, the time to pay up is fast approaching they are being officially warned by the prophet Amos and he's speaking to them what God told him to say. So in chapter 5, it's where we are today, there's, there's more judgment and you might as well plan on judgment for the rest of the book and that's pretty much, pretty much what it's about. But here, here there's a different note uh, than what we've seen so far. If they do the right thing now, after all these many decades of sinning, God will forgive them and restore them and take them back. Give them life, he actually says. They can avert their destruction by listening now. So God very often holds out a hand of mercy while warning about dire consequences. The hand of mercy is always being held out no matter what is coming. And you, we can always repent and do the right thing. And men can always turn to him even at the last moment. But you don't want to wait till the last moment because you don't know when that's going to be. So here we see that same thing. So chapter 5 reminds us that God is not only wrathful but he is merciful and he's great in his mercy. So you can tell that this is a new prophecy mainly because the chapter begins with hear this word. Whenever you see that that's like a new thing. This is a collection of prophecies that he gave and so this is a new one, an, a new moment, a new uh, speech or we don't even know the, con the context of where he gave this but we have the actual prophecy ourselves so that's helpful. So it marks a new section, new, new message. It begins again with judgment, a judgment, it's a judgment so certain that Amos talks about it like it already happened. And you know you're getting close when they start talking like that, when the prophets talk like that. So he says, hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge. What's a dirge? It's a lament. It's what people sing at funerals. And here's the dirge. She has fallen. She will not rise again. The virgin Israel. 
She lies neglected on her land. There is none to raise her up. Now that's what he's been warning them about. That's what's coming. And don't read virgin Israel as some sort of purity on her part. Um, nations and cities were called maidens or young women. That was kind of normal. The way we call a, a ship she, you know, it's just a cultural thing the way they talked about. Even Babylon is called the virgin daughter of Babylon as, as wicked as that place was. So that's just normal linguistic something from Judaism. But as you can see, what does it say about her? She is fallen. The kingdom of Israel is fallen. And it's already been decreed that that's going to happen. So verse 3 really describes um, how thoroughly the Assyrians are going to depopulate the land when they come, when it finally happens, when the hammer falls, which is about 30 years away from when this prophecy is. The city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left to the house of Israel. So it's a, a pitiable remnant that'll be left in the land. So even many hundreds of years later in New Testament times it'll be a territory that will be ruled by non-Jews. The kingdom of Israel never came back. It'll be ruled by non-Jews um, with a very mixed population. A lot of half, um, half Jewish, half whatever the Samaritans, uh, all kinds of other people. When those countries take nations into captivity, they resettle other populations there. So it was a definitely a mixed group. Plus the Greeks had been through there. The Romans were there in the New Testament. So all of that together is going on. Now there were Jews living in the north, but it was not a Jewish kingdom. There was no Jewish king. Um, you know, Jesus' family lived in Nazareth. That's in the north. That's in that part of the world. But there was, there was no identity as, as Israel anymore, even in New Testament times, which is long after this. This is, this is in the mid-8th century B.C., so we're talking over 700 years. It's not going to rise again. It's not going to be there again. So, but with all of that, God is still reaching out his hand, just like he does for you and me today. It's an amazing love that always stands alongside God's holy wrath on obstinate sinners. There's always this hand that's reaching out. So he tells them how to avoid disaster. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live. It's that simple. Seek me that you may live. So he's still there for them if they seek him. They can still live with his blessing. Now that's true of nations and it's true of individual men and women. It's true of all of us. Doesn't matter what you've done. If you can surrender your pride and your heart to the Lord, he will happily, happily grant you eternal life in his kingdom. It's, he's always right there with an outstretched hand. But just remember when you take that hand of mercy you're switching sides. You were on one side and now you're on the other side. You're, you're changing from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's a whole new thing going on there when you do that. Previous loyalties have to give way to the new loyalty which is to the Lord Jesus Christ. The world of sin, the world of self, you have to let that go. Jesus called it a kind of death. In, in Luke chapter 9 verse 23 he said if anyone wishes to come after me seek him. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world 
and loses or forfeits himself. So taking up a cross can only mean one thing, a kind of dying. That's, what, that's how they would have understood it. If you talk to cross to somebody in Jesus' day, they're thinking of guys that are being put to death, not jewelry. So a denial of self as, as regards everything that displeases God is seeking him. That's what it means to follow him. Denying self means aligning yourself with God's desires. Learning to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. That's really what it means to live the Christian life. The Lord must have the highest allegiance to him first and before all other things. All other things. A big part of that allegiance is just trusting him. So from verse 4 to the beginning of verse 6 God tells them very plainly where that trust has to be placed and it's not in idols. They trusted in gods that were not real. So the Lord says seek me. So we have this wonderful um, bit of Hebrew poetry here. If you look in your bulletin down on the right bottom there of the bulletin it's got, it's got a chiastic structure for this text. So it's kind of unique and there are, it happens many times in scripture but it's, um, it's interesting to find it in Amos in this prophecy here. So can you see it? Everybody kind of got an eye on that there? If you didn't get a bulletin, I don't know if there's any left. We've got so many folks in here but um, he says, yeah will you share? Great. If you don't have one raise your hand. So he says, watch how it goes. It says, you see the kind of, it goes down like this and then it comes back. You notice how that happens? That's called a chiastic structure. We talked about it once before. It makes a little X. That's why key is the Greek word for X. That's why Bible students call it a chiasm, a chiastic structure. Seek me that you may live, but do not resort to Bethel, and do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba. And that starts backing up. For Gilgal will certainly go into captivity, and Bethel will come to trouble seek the Lord while you may live. You see how that works? So seek the Lord while you, that you may live is b- bracketing it and then it's building down. In fact, I think I've probably told you before, the entire story of Noah's flood is a gigantic multi-chapter long chiastic structure like that. And you know where it goes down to? God remembered Noah. So it builds this whole story about it, goes down to those words and then it builds all the way back out. This is a simple more typical version which is just a few lines from the, this poetic lines here. So why, why is it set here like that? Why is it set here like that? Um, Beersheba is sort of the key line because it's going from Bethel to Gilgal to Beersheba and then it backs away a little bit. So we've talked about Bethel and Gilgal quite a bit because they're often referred to in Amos, places of false worship. Bethel of course, the house of God where Jacob received the dream, that's where they, they literally put up golden calves in the northern kingdom of Israel to keep people from going down to worship in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Say this is your God. This is your God. This is, the, this is Yahweh. It's, it's a golden calf. And they put a golden calf way up in Dan but Bethel was the one that was on the way to Jerusalem right before you crossed the border. And Gilgal was near there too, near the border. And they put up false gods there. They just flat out started worshiping pagan gods. And that was going on at Gilgal. But Beersheba Beersheba became a place of idolatry as well. But this was kind of interesting because you're thinking in your mind, well why why is it building up to Beersheba, poetically speaking? Why is that sort of the key line, like in 
the flood story, it's God remembered Noah, which is the key line of the whole story. But here, why is it Beersheba? Well, you know, people have been thinking about that and kind of messing with that. And one of the sharpest commentators, it's got a new commentary out actually on Amos, but he said, um, Beersheba, something interesting happened to the patriarchs at Beersheba, each one of them. There's, a, there's just a line in Genesis for each of the patriarchs regarding Beersheba when they were there. So Beersheba is the focus of this whole sort of idea of God being with you. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, each had something said to them at Beersheba about God's presence, about God being with you. So Abraham, um, it was actually the Philistine leader, Abimelech, who they were talking about wells and all this kind of stuff. And he says to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Okay, well that's a nice thing to say. But he recognized that. This pagan king recognized that about Abraham. God is with you in all that you do. And then in Genesis 26, God came to Isaac at Beersheba and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear. I am with you. I am with you. Then late in Genesis, all the way in chapter 46, after everything happened with Joseph and his brothers and all of that, and, and Jacob is ready to, he's told, he's invited, he's uh, welcomed, he says, come down to Egypt while this famine is going on. And that's when Jacob went to Egypt with the Israelites and that's how they ended up getting stuck there for 400 years. But God, well let me just read this for you. This is Genesis 46 verse 1. Israel set out with all that he had and came to, guess where he came to? Beersheba, good, good. <laughs> and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. So here he is at Beersheba, Beersheba, and God is speaking to him. Jacob, Jacob, and he says, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. I will go down with you. I will be with you. So to Abraham the pagans said God is with you in all that you do. To Isaac God said do not fear I am with you. To Jacob he says I will go down with you. So all of these words are spoken at Beersheba. It's just kind of interesting huh? So all of those things are a rebuke to Israel in Amos's day because they set up and trusted in idols in those very places where God promised the patriarchs I will be with you. And the patriarchs had their faults but none of them were idolatrous. They never turned to idols. So what in the world is Israel doing? Worshipping golden calves and letting everybody else's faults gods, the Baals and all that proliferate in God's land. Well they're inviting destruction on themselves. That's what they're doing. But they have to seek God. But they don't seek God. So he says seek me that you may live. So they were not only idolaters they were horrible sinners as we've been talking about here. Those, those two things usually go together. Idol, idolaters and sinners. You don't usually meet really godly righteous idolaters. They belong, they, they kind of belong together. But down in Amos 4.14 the Lord says seek good. Seek good. Not only that he says seek good and not evil that you may live and thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you. 
So that's where this is going. Seek me that you may live. Seek good that the Lord may be with you. So God will be with them as he was with the patriarchs only if they do what? Seek him. Exactly. Exactly. So they have to seek him. They have to seek good. They must seek God to live. Their national existence is actually at stake based on whether they seek him or not. They are neither faithful to him as their creator nor do they appreciate that he was their redeemer. Nor are they good. They're not good either. In fact they take advantage of people. We've talked much about this. There's more about it right here. They're they're exploiters of human beings. They pervert justice. Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord that you may live or he will break forth like a fire O house of Joseph and, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. Bethel's the worst because that's where the golden calves were which is a <laughs> like they should have known that one's bad right? Verse 7 For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. So that's in addition to their idolatry they turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. So those two things are mentioned. So justice is societal, it's human relations, it's the legal system, it's equity before the law, all those kind of things. Righteousness is personal, fulfilling your obligations to the covenant that God made with Israel to obey the law of Moses and to do all of those things, fulfilling the terms of the covenant. Proper worship is part of that, being righteous and holy living is being righteous. And Amos talks about both, though he heavily leans on the matter of justice in some of these texts here. And it's their abuse of power, really, and their ridiculously lavish lifestyles. Um, Does that ever happen in the modern world? (laughs) People living lavish lifestyles that abuse their power and pervert justice? Let's think of some examples. I was just trying, you know, I was trying to think of a modern example. I couldn't come up with any. (laughs) No political comments, please. But that's what's going on. They abuse the weak. They deny them justice. And God goes really strongly after that because justice especially, he's kind of leaning on the justice part more than the righteousness part because even pagans get justice. Unbelievers don't really understand righteousness and what it's all about, but they do get justice. Everybody wants to be treated fairly or believe that people should be treated fairly. So what Israel does in verse 7 is they turn justice into wormwood. What is wormwood? Well that's oil from a plant that tastes incredibly bitter. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible to put in your mouth. Just awful. That's a technical theological description of it. It's just awful. But if, if justice, if justice were a taste, what would it taste like? Would it be bitter? Justice, justice is not bitter. When you see justice happen, there's something sweet about it. There's something delightful about it. It tastes good. (laughs) If you want to put it in those kind of terms, right? If justice were a feeling, how would it make you feel? Good. Satisfied. Like, yes, that was right. Yes. So to see justice done, to to know that the government is just in all of its dealings, to, to know that power and money don't pervert justice, that's a good feeling. Tastes sweet. But to know To know that the weak actually have standing in court with the strong, that's a good taste. Not more standing, equal standing. In fact, the law of Moses says don't defer to the rich or to the poor. Equal justice. See, our society goes both ways wrong. 
equal justice for everyone. So Amos isn't a Marxist and justice isn't class warfare. Justice is equal treatment before the law for, for everyone, whether rich or poor. When nobody bends the law or twists the law or the making of laws, it, it, it creates a very satisfying feeling when you live in a society where that's the case, when you can count on the court system to bring true justice. Tastes good. And when righteousness is cast down, as our culture is just hell-bent on doing that, casting righteousness down, that's bitter. It's bitter for believers. Now the world doesn't get the bitterness of it because, well they do actually. They destroy everything righteous and then the society is a wreck and they feel horrible about it but they don't know why it happened. They have no idea how it came about. It's just there. Why, why is this so ugly? Why is the world so like this? And Well because you did that actually but um, they're so far from God they don't think about the fact that turning away from God is what causes these things to happen. But it does happen and it tastes bitter even to them. But God is on the side of righteousness. God is on the side of justice. Always. When professing believers, people that are supposed to serve the Lord like Israel was, when they turn justice into wormwood or if they cast righteousness down to the earth, God is offended, greatly offended. People who forsake, who deliberately forsake what they were created to do, that's an offense against heaven itself. Believers who do that literally forsake what they were <coughs> redeemed for. And when you read about people being abused by churches and all these kind of things that happen, that is, that is the most obscene kind of thing and it's happening a lot these days because you have so many church structures built on entertainment and all kinds of other things rather than simple truth, right? And people rise up that don't have godliness, they have talent. And that's, those, are, those are serious problems in the modern church. It's always been an issue, but it's an issue, it's a very public issue today, very public. So that disdainful, and it really is an unbelieving attitude toward the Lord, brings ju judgment. Verse 6, that seek the Lord that you may live or he will bring forth, break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. So Israel was running out of time. So just like he did in verse 14, four, verse 13 of chapter 4, Amos reminds them of who they are actually dealing with. So I mentioned verse 14. Verse 8, look at verse 8. It's talking about God. He who made Pleiades and Orion, those are constellations in the sky. God made those. We can't even reach them yet. God just made them. And changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. It is he who flashes forth destruction upon the strong. So that destruction comes upon the fortress. So you know who made the stars? It's the Lord. You know who developed this whole system of nature where water keeps this water cycle keeps going and filling the oceans and evaporating and coming around and raining on the land and doing all this thing and keeping everything green and lush and beautiful and wonderful. Who invented that? It was just a lucky chance. <laughs> God made that. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob did that. How can you understand that knowing that God made the, the constellations in the sky and developed the life system on earth and not fear him, not honor him, not have some kind of respect 
an overwhelming respect for him? How can you understand who he is and not seek him? Why would you not seek him? So at this point he elaborates more on their perversion of justice. He kind of explains how they turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to earth. Verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks with integrity. Now whenever it talks about the gate, what's he talking about there? I've got a gate over at my house, it's to keep the dog in. It's speaking of the judicial system. So the, any walled city had a gate and the gate is where the elders of the city would come and do justice, hear cases, make decisions, um, solve problems, deal with all of those kinds of issues. They were the leaders of the community. They were the judges. They determined punishments. They righted wrongs. That was their job was to right wrongs, to decide cases and things like that. And that's what they would do unless they were corrupt unless they were corrupt. Then it's favors for money or my buddy will get special favors or our little club group that meets in our beautiful ivory houses will treat them a little differently than we treat little poor people we don't know. And it was so widespread for Israel that the people that pointed it out, they hated him. They hated them. People that rebuked them for being unjust or corrupt were hated. They hate him who reproves in the gate. That's what that means. When, when a, a godly person or an honest person goes to the gate and says, you are perverting justice, that person becomes the focus of the ire of the leaders of the community. That's very hard to do that. It's hard to be that person. Especially when they're all sort of in this thing. And that's the way it was. So it was the honest man who was scorned. It was the honest man who was unpopular. He was the kook. He was the misfit person. You don't seem to know how the world really works, do you, Buster? <laughs> this is how it works. And we can actually help you with that. We can bring you on the inside. What's that person going to do? No. I'm not going to be like you. You're an offense to God. They hate people like that. You know, how does it feel, how do, how, what kind of feelings come when you think about a situation like that where the honest man is the one that's hated? Where the man that reproves wickedness is the one that's hated? That doesn't feel sweet. That's a bitter, bitter thing. Imagine how God feels if you feel that way. Because he's infinite. And he not only sees the injustice, he looks into the heart of the unjust and the corrupt and the perverters of justice. He looks into their heart and he knows what's driving it. And he knows the pain and the suffering of the weak which the powerful maybe see it but they don't pay attention to it. They don't think about it. And God knows all of that. Imagine how he feels. Verse 11. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many, and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes, and turn aside the poor, 
at the gate. So that's not talking about the gate of the mansion. It's talking about the gate of the city where the perversion of justice happens. Therefore, verse 13, at such a time the prudent person keeps silent for it is an evil time. So they hate the righteous person, the person that stands up for justice and he's saying the wise person just says I'd just better be quiet if I want to survive because they know how to take care of me if I point these things out. It's so interesting with all the world stuff going on right now. If you, I don't know if you, anybody saw the PBS frontline documentaries about uh, Vladimir Putin, the head of Russia, but all the people that just die that have pointed out the corruption in Russia over the years. I mean, they're poisoned. Strange accidents befall. I mean, just person after person after person. That's what, that's what that's like. So the wise person just learns to keep quiet. Or at least they understand what the consequences are. So the poor come out on the bottom always in those situations. They're horribly abused. They have no power. They have such such little amounts of uh, goods of their own and then they have to pay these ever increasing, increasing rents. That's what they're talking about. They, they squeeze them with not a thought at how much suffering they're going to be causing by doing that. My favorite, uh, last year I read a book by my favorite medieval historian Juliet uh, Baker and it was called England Arise. And it was about, in 1381 there was this huge peasant revolt across huge parts of England. Became, they, they were, it was so big they actually took over London. The peasants took over London. Can you imagine that? I mean it's an incredible story. It really is. But, and they got violent. They weren't all sweet and innocent about it, everything like that. The peasants were being hit though every which way with more restrictions on their ability to earn a living, higher rents, they were, at the rents at that they had to pay was actually granted by charter and so you could not increase them but they increased them anyway. And then they would go fight foreign wars and make them pay for it so they taxed them even more above the higher rents they were forcing them to pay. Finally they just had it. And they blew up. Burned places, tore places down, took over London, I mean all kinds of horrible stuff. But you can understand why they felt that way. Not that that's right to do that. But reading about that really gives you a sense of the kind of situation these ancient Israelite poor were facing because they had no power. They had no recourse and the justice system was against them. So if they went to the elders they were turned aside verse 12 says. That's what happened in the ancient world. So this is classic oppression making bank off the backs of the powerless twisting justice to keep them in their place and protect the elite class from any outrages that they performed against the poor. That's how the system worked. But it can be changed. It can be changed if they change. That's what God is telling them. Verse 6, seek the Lord that you may live. That's how it can change. Seek the Lord that you may live. And that means something. We mentioned verse 14 earlier, now we're caught up to there. Seek good and not evil that you may live and thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you. Seek the Lord and seek good. The Lord first or you're going to miss the good. 
The Lord has to come first. Seek the Lord. So let's talk about that just as we kind of wrap up here for a couple minutes. Um, how do you seek the Lord? Isn't that a good question? God asks you to do something? Okay, how do I do that? So let's talk about that. How do you seek the Lord? How do I actually do that? Where do I look? Well, he wrote you a book. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He wrote you a book. That's the place to start. You need to seek him by understanding who he is and what he's revealed about himself. That's what you need to do. That's how you start seeking the Lord. Who is God? Well the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 6 it says God is holy, holy, holy. Do you think he's holy? <laughs> in Hebrew if you mention something three times it's like a very complete idea. It's like super holy. God is holy, holy, holy. And holy means many things actually but it means set apart from everything else. He's different than everything else. He's above everything. We're the creation. He's the creator. He's not part of the creation in any way. He's above it. He made everything. He's different. He's holy. In terms of morality he is perfectly good. Perfect goodness. John says in he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. At all. So he's not like the force. He's not dark and light and anything like that. He's in him is he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So he's pure goodness. You've never seen pure goodness. You've never experienced it. But that's what he is. And that goodness, that holiness is the basis of his judgment. That's actually why he created hell. Uh, the unredeemable have to have some place to go when God brings the story of this earth to its conclusion. And hell is a place, it's a place without all the joys and beauty of this world. Have you noticed this world is not heaven? <laughs> right, you're right, it's not. The Bible teaches you that it was made good. In fact, once God made human beings, it was very good. But then the pinnacle of creation, human beings, went wrong. And that changed everything. So the world is now under a curse, the Bible says. The Bible teaches you that the world was made good and because of what human beings did, a curse was laid upon the earth. And it's easy to see that. I mean that's not like a, a hard thing. You see these beautiful golden sunsets, these majestic mountains, these fields of brilliant harmonious colors popping up everywhere right about now. Wonderful creatures all over the world and also cancer and chronic pain and crime and malevolence and decline and death. So our world is a mixture of the wonderful and the dreadful. It's a glorious creation but the Bible says God subjected the creation to futility. It's all winding down. In fact physicists say the, uh, the universe itself is winding down. It's slowly coming apart. Eventually it's going to be nothing. There's so much that's good and there's, it's so tainted and so deadly. Why? Because man was created to enjoy and care for it under God as servants of God. And human beings, the highest of creation, were to protect the world from evil. And tragically, mankind abandoned God right at the beginning and forfeited their lives with God. Man rebelled. Man rebelled. So hell is a place that is stripped of all that we love about this world. 
all the pleasures of the world, all the goodness of the world. It's a place for rebels to exist without the joys. So what's the first thing about seeking God? You've got to know who he is and what he's like. Where do you find that? You find that in the Bible. You have to come to grips with the fact that God is holy. That's where you start. The second thing in seeking God is that you have to realize that God has a standard for right and wrong. Now that shouldn't surprise you because we're all made in his image so we all have a a deeply moral sense. Every human being has a moral sense. And if you're the worst human being in the world you still have one because if somebody wrongs you you get mad at them. You can say well this person's a sociopath they have no morality. Nope that's not true. You go steal the sociopath stuff and he'll be upset about it. He won't say well that's just the way it should be. No he won't say that because he's moral too. Everybody's moral. Has a moral sense. By God's standard you and I are often very wrong on the wrong side of that standard. So you sin and you can discover God's standard in the Bible. You might make up your own standard but his standard is there and, if, and I would recommend if you really want to understand what God thinks about right and wrong is read the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 Jesus most famous sermon and you compare yourself to that and see how you're doing. You are unworthy of God. That's what you'll discover if you read that. And you are a moral offense in his universe. You'll discover that as well. Now that should if you seek God result in humility and grief of having offended the God who made everything. When a man knows he's offended God it makes him sad. That's why Jesus said blessed are those who mourn. He's not saying blessed is everybody that's unhappy. He's saying blessed are those who mourn over their wickedness. If you seek God you will realize that hell is not only just you'll realize that you deserve to go there. Third, last thing. To seek God look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus is the end of the search. That's the end of your seeking. So who is Jesus? Jesus is God become man to personally pay for all of your sins. To pay the debt of your sins. The penalty of your sins. He said he came to seek and to save that which was super righteous. No that's not what he said. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. That means you. And if you come to him he will save you. He will find you. The Bible says it is God's great love, mega love that led him to do that for us. He is holy but at the same time he has this great love. That's why he always holds out a hand of mercy. If you take it. Jesus will not only forgive the one who trusts in him he will give him or her a new heart. How about that? He'll do that. So Jesus is God is man. He is the creator. He made everything. He is therefore the king of creation. That means we have to bend the knee to him. To seek God is to bend the knee to him. To acknowledge 
his lordship over our lives because he's the king that we offended what else would you do he's the king and the savior and he loves us so much he bore all of our grief and all of our pain and everything we earned because of our sins he took it on himself John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that's an amazing amazing thing so you come to him humbly and humbly and he forgives you everything and you follow him so how do you seek God know who he is measure yourself by his moral standard and look to Jesus because he is the solution to your situation do that and you will live forever with him as your Lord and Savior let's pray God how perfect you are in holiness in justice and in love you invite men resist and you still invite you seek us to save us and if we have closed you out we ask you to melt our hearts by your spirit and humble us bless and be with all who seek you the living God and those of us that know you we have only your saving mercy to thank for our forgiveness and salvation that you've wrought for us in Christ and we bless your holy name in Jesus and in his name we pray amen